Please open up your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Please join with me in prayer. Lord God, merciful and kind, tender and sweet, we come before thee in that name which thou hast given us. The name in which we find our all in all. The name in which we find the gracious, loving, kind, propitious towards us. O God, without Thee, we can indeed do nothing. We ask, Lord, for Thy blessing, by the power of Thy Holy Spirit, upon this preaching, O God. We thank Thee for the songs of praise which were lifted up to thee. Lord, I ask that thy Son, Jesus Christ, that name Jesus, would be beautiful to us this evening and indeed every day of our lives, O God, as we continue to limp throughout this life. God, keep our eyes on him and his name upon our lips as we bow our knee before him, the omnipotent, made low for us, the all-powerful, wounded unto death upon a cross, the all-sufficient, needy and helpless as a babe. These things are too great for our minds to fully imagine, to fully grasp, O God. And so too is the salvation which Thou givest unto us in and through Thy Son, Jesus. But Holy Spirit, we ask that Thou would help us, Thou would guide us, Thou would give us something of a true understanding of who Christ is and who we are in and through and by Him. God, we trust in thy word, for it does not return void. And Jesus, we ask, we ask, we beg, we plead that we would seek thee. We would seek thee. We dependently lean upon thee this night, our triune God. And ask once again that thou would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord's Day 11, questions 29 and 30. The theme is Jesus as the authors of the catechism continue to expound upon and go through line by line the Apostles' Creed. We now get to that greatest of all themes, Jesus. Jesus. And his name, indeed his name, dear congregation, is our theme tonight. 
the name of Jesus, in which we see his beauty, his power, his mercy, all which he is laid before us, in which we find power and strength and glory and might, our joy, our all. I want to read to you a section from George Bethune's commentary on the name of Jesus to help put us in a frame of mind as we embark on this study. Bethune writes, Jesus, how does this very word overflow with exceeding sweetness and delight and joy and love and life, filling the air with odors like precious ointment poured forth, irradiating the mind with a glory of truth in which no fear can live, soothing the wounds of the heart with a balm that turns its sharpest anguish into delicious peace, shedding through the soul a cordial of immortal strength. Jesus, the answer to all our doubts, the spring of all our courage, the earnest of all our hopes, the charm omnipotent against all our foes, the remedy for all our sicknesses, the supply of all our wants, the fullness of all our desires. Jesus, melody to our ears, altogether lovely to our sight, manna to our taste, living water to our thirst. Jesus, our shadow from the heat, our refuge from the storm, our cloud by night, our morning star, our sun of righteousness. Jesus, at the mention of whose name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, Jesus, our power, Jesus, our righteousness, Jesus, our sanctification, Jesus, our redemption, Jesus, our elder brother, Jesus, our Jehovah, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Thy name is the most transporting theme of the church. As they sing going up from the valley of tears to their home on the mount of God, thy name shall ever be the richest chord in the harmony of heaven, where the angels and the redeemed unite their exulting, adoring songs around the throne of God and the Lamb. Jesus, thou only canst interpret thy own name, and thou hast done it by thy work on earth and thy glory at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, Savior. Let us read questions 29 and 30 of Lord's Day 11. Our catechism says this. Question 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Answer, because he saveth us and delivereth us from our sins. And likewise, because we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other. Question 30. Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints, of themselves, or anywhere else? Answer, they do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet indeed they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true, that either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they, who by a true faith receive this Savior, must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. Philippians 2 lays out once again this name and this person, for a name distinguishes to us a specific person. 
Philippians 2, starting in verse 1, we'll go through verse 11. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, says, if there, be any, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What other name does a Christian know? What other name does a Christian love? What other name does a Christian put their hope and trust and desire in? There is none. Though, Christians, we do often put our hope, our trust, our assurance in many other names, many other things, many other persons. But it is our duty, it is our delight when we walk in the Spirit to put All of those things. All of who we are in Christ. Who is God's yea and God's amen to us. Let's look at three points this evening in our Heidelberg Catechism questions. First, we see the name of Jesus. Secondly, the work of Jesus. And third, the exclusivity of Jesus. First, the name of Jesus. Names are extremely important throughout Scripture. Are they not? We see Jesus changing people's names throughout the New Testament and the Gospels. Names are extremely important in the Scriptures and are often typical, as in they are types, they are shadows, they are prophetic. They show who this person is, what they will do. Thus, the name of our Savior ought to be of particular interest to us. Thus, our Catechism has asked us in question 29, why? Is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? Answer, because he saveth us and delivereth us from our sins. That name Jesus teaches us and tells us and lays before us that he is our Savior. Let's look at the etymology and the definition of this name, Jesus. I've heard, and some of you may have heard this, some preachers, they're they're sloppy at best if, if they come up with this kind of exegetical or hermeneutical interpretation. But they'll say, see, in the beginning of the chapter, he's supposed to be called Emmanuel. And then when he's born, he's called Jesus. So we see, they'll they'll draw out of that, see how clumsy humans are, and we just never listen. Ignoring what Jesus is, what that name means, and its historical connection to the Old Testament, its typological connection to the Old Testament. And then on the other side, we have 
many modern evangelicals, and especially within the Pentecostal camp, Word of Faith camp, that, or, or Hebrew roots even, that take Jesus' name and tell us we have to call him Yeshua as if we're going to get special blessing from calling him Yeshua. So on both sides, we have this working against us. But what does the name Jesus mean? Why was he called Jesus? He wasn't called by some other name. He wasn't given any other name. He was given this specific name. So let's look at the etymology and the definition of the name Jesus. Now, Jesus is an English transliteration of the Greek word Jesus. Transliteration means you literally just find the equivalent sounds in the English language to render the letters in the Greek language. And it came actually through Latin and then into English. So Jesus is simply an English transliteration of the Greek name Iesus. And this name itself is a Greek transliteration of the Old Testament Hebrew name Joshua. Joshua. Joshua, or as it is in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Jehoshua, is an Old Testament Hebrew name. And it's made up of two Hebrew words, Oshea, meaning to save or a savior, and the prefix yah or yeh, indicating the divine name of God given to Moses, namely Jehovah, Jehovah, which is sometimes wrongly pronounced Yahweh, which completely changes the meaning of the name if you know anything about Hebrew vowels. But that aside, Joshua is Jehoshua, and Jesus is the Greek transliteration into English transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua. Thus the name Joshua or Jehoshua means Jehovah shall save. Or if you were to translate it a little bit more freely, Jehovah shall save through or in or by Osea. Oshea, excuse me. Jehovah shall save. That's what the name Joshua means. And now Joshua, who was he in the Old Testament? He was one that came after Moses, that great lawgiver, through whom God began delivering his people out of Egypt and was supposed to, by Moses, deliver them into and bring them into the promised land. But Moses got angry, hit the rock, and he didn't get to go in. So who was raised up in his stead? Joshua. And Joshua brought the people of Israel into the promised land of Canaan and gave them victory over their enemies, gave them blessing. So Joshua was the one that fulfilled this office. Moses was the one through whom the law came, and the deliverance was begun. And Joshua fulfilled that deliverance. God used him. Jehovah used Joshua to do this. He was the means by which God used. He was the means God used to bring the fulfillment of their deliverance out of Egypt. Now our incarnate Lord is named Joshua. Why? Because he is the greater, the second Joshua, if you will, who brings us out of our spiritual bondage in Egypt, our spiritual Egypt, into the promised land of eternity through his blood and his righteousness. This is why he was named Joshua, or Jesus. Jesus simply means Joshua. So these people that want to pronounce it Yeshua, Yehoshua, whatever, you're simply just pronouncing it how the Old Testament pronounce it, pronounces it, that's great. But they miss the theological meaning, the theological connection, what God is proclaiming to us in naming his only begotten son, Jesus. 
which is that he is the greater Joshua. He is the true deliverance of the true Israel, bringing them into the true promised land. Next, let's look at the loveliness of this name, Jesus. The loveliness. It means Jehovah saves. God saves. The Lord saves us. That we could be saved. If you know anything about your sin, and if you are a Christian, you do. If you know anything about who you are and what lies inside of your bosom, it is terrifying. It is black. It is evil. It is sinful and wicked. And the more you progress in sanctification, the more you see this foe, this bosom foe, your sin springing forth in different manners, different ways, at different times. And it begins to sicken you all the more. And it almost becomes absurd to even imagine that God could save a wretch like you, a wretch like me, that we could be saved. That name is sweet to us because it is to a rebellious people that this name comes. A name is given. Jehovah saves shall be born of a virgin, Jesus, who is the Christ. That is the significance of this great name, Jesus. And that's why it is sweet to his people, because even his name itself describes who he is to his people. It's not simply just a sound. Like a lot of American English names, you're Frank or whatever. You leave it at that. Not so in the New Testament and the Old Testament. The scriptural names often describe to us, put forward to us, and preach to us who God is. In these people's lives. And in this one person, this one man, this human, Jesus, Jehovah saves. Who is not only man, but God man. In one glorious person. And that's why his name is to be lovely to us. It's to be sweet to us. When we hear it, when we speak it, it is to have a sense of awe and reverence. We should not... Just say it as a cuss word. We should not just say it as something to fill space. As something to shoo away the silence. But as something that should be uttered with a tear in the eye. And a tremble in the lip. And joy. A smile. It is sweet to us. This name Jesus. Jehovah saves. Describes this. This this person. Who comes to us. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of His, the word of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace, grace multiplied, grace on top of grace, grace superabundant, uber grace, grace upon grace, grace for grace. That's why the name is sweet. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Grace for grace. Verse 17, for the law was given by Moses. It's given by Moses. Brought out of the land of Egypt. But he didn't get to go in. 
The people rebelled in the wilderness. Then, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He hath declared him. Meaning he has published before us who this God is. In times of old, he spake to us through the prophets. In sundry times, in different ways, now he has spoken to us in these last days by his Son, through whom he created the world, the universe. This same word, this same Jesus, this same Jehovah saves, Joshua, has saved his people, delivered his people. And in him we have grace for grace. What else could make a name so lovely? What else could make a name so lovely? Those who are dearest to thee, dear believer. Your wife, your husband, your daughters, your your son, your best friend, your closest bosom soul to thee. Their name is sweet upon your lips. Their name is sweet upon your lips. How much more this name, Jesus, Joshua, God saves. God with us. For in Joshua, when he brought the people of Israel into the promised land, God went with them because Moses said, or God spoke to Joshua saying, that my angel will go before thee. My angel will fight for thee and with thee. So in Joshua, God was with his people, bringing them into the promised land. And in Jesus Christ, we have God with us in a way unlike anyone in history has ever had up until the coming of Jesus Christ. The word is now flesh and dwelt among us and dwells in us as Christians by the Holy Spirit. That is why his name is sweet. That's why his name is lovely. Next, notice the the loveliness not only of his name, but of his person, of his person. His name, like all other names, signifies, declares a person. When people hear my name, they think of me. But I am a person and not a name. So too Jesus is a person and not a name. And that person is the wonderful God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the one of whom we just spoke who gives us grace for grace. He is not a thing to be studied. He's a person to be known, loved, cherished, and served. His person is, described, is such a person as is, as is described to us in the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 5, if you turn there. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. The groom comes to his bride in this chapter at the beginning. He says, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. So he comes to her. He's knocking. He's rapping at the door, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew. 
and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? This is the bride to the groom. I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels are moved for him. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love, pining after him. Now, listen to the women of Jerusalem's response to her. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than any other beloved that thou dost so charge us? Why are you pining after him? What is the big deal? What is it about this one man that you are seeking after? What makes him so great? She says, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousands. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves with the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. The soul that knows its Savior, knows its beloved, knows what the preciousness, the loveliness, the sweetness is of his person. You can spend a long time expositing all of that, and we don't have the time tonight. But know this, all of those attributes which the bride gives to her groom there, speak, of, speak to us of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sweetness, the true groom of his bride, the church. But if you just look at verse 16, his mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. His mouth, those things which he speaks to us, the kisses of his love and his presence to us are sweet. So when somebody says, what is it about this Jesus? If you want to know what it means in First Peter when it says, be ready to give a defense for those who ask of the hope that is within thee. This is the answer. It's the same question they ask. What is it about Jesus? What is it about Jehovah saves that makes him so precious to you? Why do you have hope in this, this God that you proclaim? This man that you proclaim. It is because he is worth more than all to me. He is my all in all, my beloved. He is altogether lovely. He is full of sweetness and myrrh. And his lips drop fatness and honey and grace. And he is for me, grace for grace. Not as the law which comes to condemn, to lock me away. But as the bridegroom who comes to me and frees me from the prison of sin and death and Satan, and hell, and gives to me the grace, the joy, the intimacy of his presence. That is why his person is lovely. His name reveals 
his loveliness to us. Second, the work of Jesus. Looked at the name of Jesus. Secondly, the work of Jesus. Or you could phrase it another way, the reason why he was called Jesus. The catechism answers, because he saveth us and delivereth us from our sins. So from what does Jesus save? From bondage in Egypt, as Joshua. I.e., or in other words, spiritual bondage to sin and to Satan. If you would, flip with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. We'll go through verse 15. We start in 12, because Paul says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has made us able given us the ability, has made us worthy to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. In verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. That is Jesus. That is his work. He delivers us from Egypt, our spiritual Egypt. Our spiritual darkness, the kingdom of Satan and hell and death, he brings us out of that. He delivers us out of it. He walks us out of it. And with a strong hand, as it says in Exodus, the Lord demonstrated his grace and his love to his people Israel in bringing them out of bondage in Egypt by his strong hand. If in the mere deliverance of a relatively small group of people out of bondage to a much greater nation many thousands of years ago was done with such power and such power was seen and heard that as they were going into the lands, they said, these are the people that belong to that God, whoever that God is, delivered them and smote the Egyptians with many plagues and he brought them out with a strong hand. How much more then do we see God's power in his son, Jesus, That name given to us. That person who has delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Of himself. He brought us into his kingdom by his blood. The shedding of blood. The forgiveness of sins. You've heard it said and it is true that at the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. He created ex nihilo out of nothing. Yet in the recreation of a sinful person into a new creature in Christ Jesus. He doesn't create ex nihilo. He creates. He recreates. He reshapes. He refashions. And completely and utterly transforms a broken, rebellious, sinful, enmitous heart against himself into a child. Translating them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. This is a far greater demonstration of the Lord's hand. His arm is flexed much greater in our salvation than in simply bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. So he saves us from our sins. That's why his name is Jesus. Jehovah saves. So from what does Jesus save us? Sin, Satan, hell, bondage. 
But next, how does Jesus save? How does Jesus save? Well, Jesus saves by leading his people out of the land of bondage into the land of promise. Or in other words, spiritually, from the guilt and, and power of their sins. Not just the guilt, but also the power of their sins. Dying for them in their place. Taking the curse and condemnation of the law upon himself and giving them his own righteousness before the law. That is what is how Jesus saves the people. When he brought them out of the land of Egypt, he did it with many signs and wonders that destroyed and ravished and plundered the Egyptians. But in the salvation of us, his people, Jesus is the one ravished and destroyed on our behalf. And in that, we see his sweetness even more. If you go to Galatians 3, 13, the Apostle Paul says this. Galatians 3, 13. It says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. If you're familiar with the Pentateuch, especially those law books, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you see the curses laid out by Jehovah to those covenant breakers, to the law breakers. Curses are put upon them. The sky above them would be as brass. The land underneath their feet would be as iron. And Jesus took upon him those curses, those many and manifold curses. He took upon the curse as one who leads astray a blind man to rob him and throw him in a ditch. One who plunders his neighbor's wife and daughter. One who steals and thieves and connives and lies and destroys. He had those curses put upon him. That is how he saves us. Our sins were imputed to him. As you recall in 2 Corinthians 5.21. That God made Jesus to be sin on our behalf. Meaning our sin was placed upon Jesus' account. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our bondage was one to the curse of the law. To the curse of the law. That when hell sealed up over us, it would be proclaimed. It would be proclaimed. Justice has been done. God has justly destroyed and judged this sinner, this rebel, this covenant breaker, this lawbreaker. And all of creation would praise God. And will praise God for the destruction of the wicked of whom we were among. And in bringing us out, saving us from our sins, being Jesus, those curses, those consequences, those penalties were laid upon Christ. But his shoulders are broad, dear believer. He has a deep chest and broad shoulders and he can carry our sin away into the wilderness as the scapegoat. And moreover, 
He can surely satisfy the wrath that is due to our sins. For he drank down the cup of God's wrath. Though he prayed, Lord, for he he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. Yet knowing that there was no other way that he could satisfy the wrath due to our sins. He drank it down to its dregs. And when he turned it over, not one drop came out. That is what Jesus means. He is our Savior. And he saves us from our sins. And how he does that is he takes upon our sins. Upon himself. And the Holy One is accursed. The sinless one becomes the sinful one. On our behalf. That we might be united to him. That brings us to our next point. Whom does Jesus save? Whom does Jesus save? So from what does Jesus save? Sin. How does Jesus save? Imputation. Whom does Jesus save? Well, he saves the people of Israel, as the first Joshua did. He delivers them into the promised land. But not just that one physical people, but true spiritual Israel, which is made up of all those who are elected by him in eternity, whom he dies for in time, regenerates by the Holy Spirit at conversion, who believe upon his name for salvation by the gift of faith which he gives them, those who are sanctified by him throughout their lives and are to be glorified by him at that last day. In other words, all Christians. That's whom Jesus saves. He saves the invisible church. Or in other words, all whom the Father gives him. John six thirty seven, All whom the Father gives him. He saves. Now, notice the beauty in that. Notice the beauty in that. That the Father gave. If you are a Christian here, the Father gave you into his hand. Into Christ's hand. And said, you will undertake for this one. You will undertake for this one. You will bear his punishment. And I will not spare you so that I may spare him whom we love. That is what Christ did. And the Father gave you, dear believer, to his Son, Jesus. And you are in good hands. You are in strong hands, capable hands, omnipotent hands. And he who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, who are those who are given into Jesus' hand by his Father? Whoever comes to him. Whoever comes to him. That's why we can place the gospel offer before people. We can say to people sincerely, even as Calvinists, all who come to Jesus and believe upon his name shall be saved. Period. Because they will. And people want to get hung up on that Calvinism part. The election part. When really, they're forgetting to see the beauty in it. Especially as us as Calvinists, we forget to see the beauty in it. That that means all who come to him shall be saved. Because they've been put into Jesus Christ's hand. That means us. We shall be saved. We will peacefully pass through this life. Into death. Through death. Into the presence of God. 
we will. That is an amazing blessing that is reserved only to believers. No one else can die in peace. When the rest of humanity passes through Kendron, they will be filled with terror, anguish, hopelessness, fear, and wrath will be put upon them. But us, as believers, when we die, we will pass through safely. Satan's mouth will be shut, finally, against us. Our sin will no longer rise up. For it will be a purifying process as we die and this flesh is shed from us. Third and last point, the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusivity of Jesus. The Catechism finishes its answer to question 29 by stating, We ought not to seek, neither can find, salvation in any other. And then it asks question 30 as a follow-up question, namely, Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints, of themselves, or anywhere else? Answer, they do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true, that either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they, who by a true faith receive this Savior, must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. Or he could translate it, will find all things in him necessary to their salvation. There is no other way, dear church, into spiritual Canaan, than under the guidance of Joshua. We must be led by Joshua if we are to go into Canaan. In other words, there's no other way to our heavenly promised land as Christians than under the leadership and by the power of Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua. As we remember in Acts 4.12, the apostle said, there is salvation in no other name than Jesus Christ. There's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. That is the only name. That is the exclusive name. And either he cannot save at all, and we must seek salvation by other means, or he is a final and complete and full Savior. Those are the two options. Either his name is a lie, it's a misnomer, it misleads us, and Jehovah saves being given to him is inappropriate. Or it is true. And he truly is the Jehovah that saves. Those are the options. There is no other way into spiritual Canaan than by Jesus. For he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes unto the Father but by me. He is exclusively the way by which we come to spiritual Canaan. Those who seek another way of salvation or in any way mix or combine faith in Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, our Jehovah, with faith in him, is to deny him altogether. If we mix or we combine faith in Christ with any works that anyone else can do, we deny him outright. Remember, this was, this was the problem of the Judaizers, right? In Galatians 5.4, We see this. Apostle Paul says, For we, through the Spirit, wait 
Oh, sorry, 5-6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but, but faith which worketh by love. And Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever you are, who wish to be justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. If we wish to be justified in any other way, if we try to say it's faith in Christ, but also some repentance in there. It's faith in Christ, but also a lot of good works. It's faith in Christ, but also correct and perfect doctrine. Then we no longer have a sufficient Savior. Now there's obviously very key, important doctrines that need to be known and believed, like that Jesus is God, that he's a Savior. But lots of people don't even have a perfect understanding of that and probably have a somewhat incorrect understanding about that. Like the thief on the cross. Do you think he was able to articulate the Trinity when, when, they, when you asked him what the Trinity was, the doctrine of the Trinity? He starts quoting the London Baptist Confession of Faith? Probably not. But he knew one thing. Jesus, remember me when you get into paradise. Remember me in your kingdom. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. So we cannot mix anything. To mix anything with faith in Christ and his work is to deny him. Who are some people that do this? What are some faiths that do this? And what are some ways that we can fall prey to doing this? Well, our confession gives us, or our, our catechism here gives us a couple. Those who pray to saints or, or rely on them in any way as co-mediators. So the Roman Catholic Church, that Babylonish whore. They are not co-mediators. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. That's it. You can put as much ash as you want on your head, ears, nose, forehead. It doesn't matter. You can pray the rosary as many times as you want. All you're doing is storing up wrath for yourself and making hell hotter. There is one mediator. So Catholics do this. Greek Orthodox do this. Mormons do this. Jews do this. Why do I say Jews do this? Because they don't have the same Jehovah that we do. They don't even call him by his name. They won't even utter his name. They call him Adonai, which just means despot, master. We can call him by his name. It's our birthright. It's our birthright to call him Jehovah, for he gave us that name. And even more so, he gave us the name Jesus. We can call him Jesus, our sweet, sweet Jesus. So those who bring in any works of righteousness in place of or in addition to the work of Jesus Christ, these people deny him. And this was the error of the Judaizers, the Galatian Judaizers. It wasn't that they were just denying faith in Jesus Christ altogether. They weren't doing that. In Galatians 3, 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul says this, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? What was their error? What was their heresy? What was their problem? They were combining Faith in Jesus with other things. We want to just write them off and say they had another gospel because they made up some crazy thing, like Mormons or something. No, not so. 
They had faith in Christ. They believed in the Holy Spirit. They believed the Holy Spirit had been given to them. They knew that Jesus Christ had died on their behalf. They knew that he had fulfilled all righteousness. And yet they were saying, but also we need to add circumcision in. Also we need to add in some, rest, some of the rest of the law. That was their error. That was their problem. They mixed even the smallest bit. So Catholics, they do mass. They do pilgrimages. They do good deeds. They do confession. They do holy water. They do all sorts of things. Go to visit relics. But also Arminians do this. They mix it. And they're usually not aware. Middle knowledge, they call it. Scientia media. Middle knowledge. Meaning that there's this middle spot in between what we know and what God knows. What God thinks will happen, basically. The place that's a little bit blurry for God. He's not quite sure. And he exists in that by his own choosing, I've heard some Arminians say. It was his own sovereign choosing to limit his knowledge about our salvation so he could love us truly and freely and give us free choice. Arminians make it dependent on human choice and free will, which is an error. And I'm not saying all Arminians are unsaved. I'm not at all. Far from it. There's many great Arminian preachers and have been throughout history. They're just wrong. And it is an error that is very dangerous. Why? What made me a Calvinist, dear church, what got me into Reformed theology was one specific doctrine that Arminians teach. That you can lose your salvation. That made no sense. And it does make no sense. That you can be Christ. You can be a new creation in Christ Jesus. You can be redeemed by him. Once and for all. Regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Have the gift of the Holy Spirit given to you. And yet fall away. Lose it. And then get saved again. And then lose it again. Get saved again. Lose it again. That breeds error. That is error. And that is dangerous. It destroys people's hope. It makes Christ look not like Jesus, Jehovah saves. But, by, but something else. Jehovah helps save. Jehovah gives you the chance to be saved. Jehovah gives you the chance to save yourself. Hopefully you can hold on to it. But believers cannot be fully or finally lost. That's what got me into seeing the Reformed faith. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That's great. It teaches election. But here's the key that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Meaning without blame. Not, at, not until we add blame into ourselves. That's not what it says. It says, without blame, before him, in love, predestined us to be holy. Verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Pastor Taylor and I were just talking today about the doctrine of adoption. God's doctrine, or the, the Bible's doctrine of, of adoption. And just like in human terms, the adoptee, the child that is adopted, does not choose to be adopted. It doesn't pay for the adoption. It doesn't get to decide who, where it goes or who gets it. No. 
It's all the adopter that does it. The person doing the adopting. And so too with God, he has adopted children. And they are his. He paid the price, which was the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Jehovah saves. Joshua. Who brings us out of Cain, or out of bondage in Egypt into Canaan. Namely his house. His father's mansion. We are brought in as children. In John 10, in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, he knows his sheep. He says, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I am come that you may have life and have it abundantly. He also then says that his sheep are held in his father's hand. And nothing can snatch you. From your father's hand if you are a believer. Nothing. And I would assume that would imply you can't jump out either. You are held sure and steadfast in your Savior's hands. Another, peop- another type of way that we can mix is what we see with many new Calvinists. Many new Calvinists. Lordship, salvation proponents. John Piper. Final justification. Federal vision. There's all sorts of nonsense and dangerous errors that are being accepted and propagated because they never had a real confessional foundation. They didn't understand a historic orthodox reform position, i.e. the Bible's teaching. They didn't understand it, so they went into error. And began mixing some form of Jesus starts it. Basically, there's a Catholic view. Jesus starts it. He washes you. He cleans you. You are saved. You're regenerated by his sovereign decree. And then you progressively, with his aid, fulfill that justification. And will finally be justified if you hold fast. That's not the teaching of scripture. That's heresy. And people under the name of Calvin, they get to have his name known. You don't. You can have the moniker New Calvinist. Or a non-Calvinist. And many people are getting caught up in this. Or Lordship Salvation proponents. That rightly understand that Jesus is Lord. And that he's Lord of believers. And then wrongly apply that to meaning that you have to repent of all known sin prior to getting saved. And then afterwards, you have to live a constant life of trying to find all of your sins and repent of them. It's subtle error. Because there's an aspect of that that's true. An aspect of that that's true. It's defined incorrectly and then applied incorrectly. We repent of sin because we are dead in sin and then made alive. So thus we put our faith in Jesus Christ. right? Right? And then after that, we live after him because we love him. Though imperfectly. So you don't have to worry about your final justification. You know why? Because he is our justification. We are justified by faith. And those whom he knew, foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's sanctification. And those who he justified, he will glorify. It has nothing to do with us. New creatures in Christ walk in love towards God and one another because they are saved. Not to get saved or to stay saved. Yet in all this, we must know, dear church, it is only by Jesus 
That one name and faith in it, trust in it. Casting yourself upon that one name, that one offer made to us. And that's only Jesus. Of all people, we should love Jesus' name most of all. As people who are closest to the biblical truth. As Reformed, Particular Baptist, Anabaptist, whatever you want to call us. We're biblical. We're biblical Baptists. It's only Jesus. We must have Jesus' name on our lips loudest and sweetest. We must dwell closest to Christ. What then must I do, sirs, to be saved? Was said in the book of Acts. The jailer. And he said, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in all thy house. That's it. We're justified by faith without the works of the law. Without the works of the law. And that's why Paul is then able to say in Galatians 2, 19 and 20, For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the gospel. That's what sanctification looks like. Not trying to see if you've repented of all of your known sins. Guess what? You haven't. You never will. You will always have more sin. You will always find new ways to sin until you are freed of this body when you are crossed over that river into heavenly Canaan. And who will bring you through? Joshua will. Jesus. The greater Joshua. The true Jehovah saves. Not that first one who was just a type and shadow. But you truly have him, dear believer. And thus, as we see that Jesus is our all in all. That Jesus is the sweetest name we know. And the reasons why. We thus can ask, what is thy only comfort in life and death? To which we may answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own. But belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Dear church, Jesus, Jesus Jesus, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we come before thee once again. We ask, O God, by the power of thy Holy Spirit, thou will cause us to love thee, Jesus, to love thy name, to honor it, to live close to thee, knowing that our salvation is found in thee alone and in none else, and to reject all other frames all other supports, all other means of righteousness and cling only to thee alone, O Jesus. God, we thank thee, we praise thee, ask for a blessing upon this preached word unto thy people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will the congregation...